from this day forward. Uh, almost 15 years ago, I said those words uh, to my wife, Kelly. And um, I can remember it. I remember her coming down the aisle in that beautiful white dress. I remember the tears that came from my eyes uh, as I was like, whoa, man, like what a beautiful woman, you know? And uh, it was just an incredible day. I remember uh, me saying, yes, I will take this woman, Kelly, to be my wife, to have the hold from this day forward for richer or poor in sickness and health. You know, you remember those things? Until what? Death do us part. And so that was, the, that was the words that I said to her. And I remember uh, the excitement of that. I remember uh, a little bit of the wedding. And then I remember nothing of the, the ceremonies afterwards. <clears throat> but I do remember us heading to the hotel. We were going to fly out and go to uh, Disney the next morning. Which, by the way, if you are going to get married and you want to wait a while to have children, go to Disney, Okay. <laughs> It's a, it's a great thing to remind you to hold off for a while, okay? And so we were going to fly out the next morning and go to Disney, and I remember just the excitement of that. Like, okay, this is my wife. And, and I, now, don't get me wrong, I, I was young. I had no idea exactly what all that meant other than, hey, she's mine, and I am hers, and this is going to be awesome. And we're heading to DFW. We're going to stay the night, and the next morning we're going to fly out. And we are on 635, and I look over, and I'm like, I'm so excited about us. And we're just kind of talking, and, and all at once, like she just literally burst into tears. Now, let me explain something to you real quickly. If just a few hours earlier, you had said from this day forward, and then you're excited about the potential of where this relationship's going, and your wife bust out into tears as you begin your honeymoon, it's a little bit alarming, okay? And so here it is. We're on 635. She is in the passenger seat of her black Honda Civic. We're driving, and I am like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, <laughs> I mean, just keeps going. And I'm like, what is the, what's going on? Like, and I, I, I'm, at that point, I mean, she's crying long enough that I'm starting to ask questions. Like, okay, do you, do you think you married the wrong guy? I mean, did I say something? Did I do something? And, and my thought is, really, God, this is how it's going to begin? And then after a few minutes, and it's just kind of this awkwardness, and like she's still crying, I'm like, are you okay? Like, what is going on? And then at that point, she finally goes, the flowers were not the right color. And so, like, for a brief second, I'm like, hey, praise the Lord. Praise God. Like, it's not me. It's the flowers, okay? But listen, the one thing that we are promised in Scripture after we say the words from this day forward is that we will have difficult times. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, listen, I urge you to live a life like I have in singleness, and he says, but if you can't do that, that's okay, because God's imparted to me gifts, and he's imparting you gifts, and you have the freedom to do as you choose. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, it says, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if you have a betrothed woman and she marries, she's not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
So if you don't want troubles, if you want, don't want challenges in relationships, Paul says, stay single and live your life for, for the, the cause of Christ and, hey, do that well. But if you choose to marry, understand what you're getting into. Because when you say these words, from this day forward, it means that you are committing to things that are going to be challenging. They're not problems, but they are challenges. And so I think the thing is, is as you go forward and you see challenges in your marriage or in your relationship, I think you have to begin to ask yourself a question. Why did I marry? Now, when I was 21 years old and I married my wife, I married her because I loved her. I thought she was attractive and beautiful, and I thought that she had a kind heart, and I thought she'd be a wonderful woman. But I did not go into our marriage assuming this, and that was to bring God glory in my marriage. I married her because she made me happy. And I want you to understand, I think as... uh, Gary Thomas says in the book, Sacred Marriage, he asks this question, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And I think if you and I were to peel back the layers and look at our marriage and our relationships and even the intent of us marrying, I think most of us in here, at least I would have to admit that I didn't marry with the idea of mind that I would make God pleased, and ultimately he would desire to make me holy through that process. Now, has God done that? Yes, but that was not my intention. And I think that's why so many marriages in our society and also within our church are going awry is because we have asked the question, can she make me happy? Does he fulfill me? Is he my soulmate? Does he please me? Does she do what I want? And we're asking the wrong question. And so as we begin this series, a four-part series that we're going to unveil through the month of February, I want to begin with a theology of marriage. And I am pretty sure that I've never really preached the theology of marriage since we've began, although you've heard bits and pieces throughout the years. And so I think that today, if you can grasp the concept of the theology of marriage, that it will allow you maybe for the first time in your life and maybe for the first time in your marriage to see marriage the way that God sees it. And I think if you can begin to see not only how marriage is viewed from the lens of God, but also your role in marriage as God designed you, I think it will help you and I live in marriage with the goal of holiness as opposed to happiness. Because I'm pretty sure that even in this room, with the number of people that are in here, there are probably one or two couples that you are debating throwing in the towel. That you are possibly thinking about ending your marriage, possibly thinking about a different route. And my prayer is today that he would speak softly and gently, tenderly to you as well to help you understand what marriage is and why God designed it that way, okay? And so let's dive in, okay? Let me start first with helping you see who God is and why he allows us to have marriage. Well, here it is. Marriage is a display of the gospel of God. Now, it's first set up, and marriage is also a picture of the Trinity. And I need you to grasp this concept because it's going to be foundational as we move through today, okay? But God exists in three persons, He is one God, yet he has three distinct personalities. They are Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Now, we oftentimes struggle, and even I do, I struggle to understand exactly how that all works, that you have a triune God, that, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all have deity, and they're, they're not in modes, they don't function separately, but they're all one, they all are distinct in personality, but yet they're one God, and you see that consistently throughout the scriptures, that uh, the the Trinity does exist. I mean, you have the Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 1, 26. It says, come, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality there. So you see that the Trinity exists. In John chapter 1, you say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so the Word is Jesus. And it simply says that Jesus was there with God in the beginning. Colossians 1 says that Jesus spoke all things into being, both things that were made, Things that were seen, not seen, all of it was created by him and for him. And so Jesus was the one who established creation. So you see that all parts of the Trinity exist from the very beginning. Scripture supports that as you read it. But here's what I also want you to understand. Is that when you look at the Trinity, when you look at the Father, when you look at the Son, when you look at the Holy Spirit, you need to see four things that are really important and are crucial. Number one, when you look at all of them, you will see consistently unity. There's a unifying agent within the Holy Spirit that allows them to be who they are, but yet they're never contradicting one another. They're always unified. That's, that's why you, you, you have these personalities in the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet the, the Son always is submitting to the Father, and the Holy Spirit's always submitting to the Son. And so you see that there's a great unity there, that they're not, uh, even though th they have different wills and different personalities, they're never self-willed, and they're, they're always conscious of how they serve and support each other in those distinct roles. And so what you need to also understand is that while there's unity, there's also equality. And so what I, I'll beg this question, I ask you, well, is the son less significant than the father? Because the father seems to be the architect and the designer of it all, but Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence. Jesus is the one who laid his life down so that you and I would have salvation. Jesus is the one who said in John chapter 14, verse 26, he goes, it's best that I go away that a more suitable helper comes to you. He says the same thing in John chapter 15, verse 26. He's, he says, I got to go away so that something else can come, that meaning the, the person, the work of the Spirit who resides in our life. And so I want you to understand that though they're distinct in roles, their unity supports equality. And so there's not one of the persons in the, in, in the place of the Trinity that is less significant than the other. So the Spirit is not the stepchild. The Son is not the, the one that you kind of push aside because you go, oh, well, his work's over. He created the world and he saves people. No, it, they're all distinct and they're all unifying and there's equality there. So you need to see that because that equality then allows you to express order. And so what's the order? You, you see that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all support one another, but you also see that there is order, that there is the Father, that there is the Son, and that there is the Holy Spirit. And so with that order means that in the Trinity, there is never chaos. 
They're never fighting against each other, but they're always supporting one another. They're always unified in what they're accomplishing. And yet, the last thing is, is that in the midst of all this, in the midst of unity and equality and order, there's this distinct diversity. They all have their part to play. So if you get this, raise your hand, raise your hand, okay? If you're here in Will's Point, raise your hand. Yes, yep, okay. If you don't get it, then just kind of keep looking at me like, oh. Listen, here's why this is so crucial, is the fundamental part of marriage looks like the Trinity. And the reason why is because if God displays himself through the Trinity, and gospel-centered marriage is a picture of who God is, then it's important to note that these same things are true for us. Think about it. God created marriage to unify two people together in Christ. Do you see this? To take two people of what? Diversity, different roles, different gifts, different personalities, and to bring them together as what? One flesh. For this reason, you will leave your father and mother and you will be united together as one. And so you see this incredible picture of being unified in Christ despite your diversity. And so I want you to understand, this is huge. Ladies, your men are different than you. Men, your wives are different than you. One made out of dirt the other fashioned out of a rib. I can't think of two bigger distinctions. That's why we are the way we are. You oftentimes wonder, does he have a brain? Well, he was made of dirt. You oftentimes wonder, will she ever stop shopping and running up the Amazon account? She was fashioned. And so you've got this incredible diversity, but yet it's brought together to be unifying. That's God's design. It's not meant to be chaotic, but it's meant to have great order. And so I want you to understand that when there's order, then there's also, there's roles that create that order. And when you flip the roles, when you make the Holy Spirit the Father and the Father the Holy Spirit, when you try to put Jesus and make him a Holy Spirit, then listen, that's not the order. That's, it makes things chaotic. And you never see chaos throughout the scriptures or for that matter within the Trinity. And so God did not design marriage to have chaos, but to have order in spite of diversity because of unity in the body. Now, let me ask you this question. So because there's order and there's different roles, are you saying that a woman is inferior and that a man is superior? And just as is true in the Trinity, there's equality. There is also equality within both gender roles in marriage. One is not created less than the other. One is not superior and not one inferior. Both are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26. And come, let us make man in our image. 
both male and female, created in the image of God. Psalm 139 would declare to us that we are both fearfully and wonderfully made. And so for the idea that a man is superior and a woman is to get in her place is an unbiblical principle neglecting the supremacy of God in creation. And so for, if you're an egotistical man in here who has somehow suppressed women over time, you were unbiblical and you were wrong. At the same time, if you're a woman in here and you usurp the authority of a man within the home and within the church, then you, you too can be wrong. Because God has created those roles not to be less than, but to what have equality yet distinctions in their differences. And so the question then becomes, okay, if this is true, then what does this mean? It means that man and woman complement each other. It means that women, you help us as men fill in the gaps. And if you didn't know and your husband's never admitted to it, then let me explain it to you. We have major gaps. I have gaps all over, and I'm so thankful for my wife that she committed in our marriage to fill in my gaps. Because of the fact that she fills in so many gaps for me, you actually look and you go, man, he, he seems to be a pretty sharp guy. And I'm so thankful that my wife is the supporting agent in that, that she frees me up to do the ministry that God's called me to while she oversees so much of our home. And so the question is, what's the implications in all this? Well, here it is, unity in diversity. So unity in diversity means that, hey, we're attracted to each other by our differences, which is really a cool thing, right? The other part of it is that there's equality in the midst of intimacy. And so even though we have equality, we can also have intimacy. That means that we honor one another and we enjoy each other. And so that's the way that God has designed it. Do you understand? It's the picture of the Trinity. It's the picture of the Godhead in marriage. And so why did God do it that way? He did it that way so that you and I could display to a world who needed the gospel what the gospel should look like. And so here is what I want you to see as we go through the rest of today. Your marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. And so where you fail to share with your neighbors about the gospel and you have a hard time explicitly sharing and formalizing with your words how Jesus could save them in their sin and how their sin separates them from God, then what you see is this, where you may fail to share it with your words, you can share it through the holiness of your marriage. And so the question then becomes, well, what do people see in your marriage? What do your friends see? What does your family see? What do your neighbors see? Do they see your marriage as something created by God to establish the beautiful work of his hands? Or do they see chaos? Do they see confusion? Do they see disorder? Do they see a bickering and a fighting for control? Or do they see this beautiful picture of what the Trinity was and what your marriage ought to be? So that's a great question that you can have conversation about as you go through your week. But let's talk about order. Let's talk about what this looks like and how God created it and why he did that. So here we go. Let's start at this. Man was created um, to be the head. Woman's created to be the helper. You can get supporting text uh, on that from 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, Genesis 2.18. And so you see all of this uh, that 
man is created to lovingly exercise authority over the woman, that woman was created to extend glad submission to her husband. And you may, well, where, where do you get this from? Well, like, okay, and here it is, Ephesians chapter 5. And so I want to read it with you, uh, and then I want you to kind of see it as it plays out in front of our eyes. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then we would love to bless you with one as you leave today. Uh, just as Mark mentioned earlier about a communication card, if you take that to our resource center, and then while you're there, go, hey, I'd like a Bible. I don't have one. We'd love to bless you with one so that you do have one. But in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through 33, it says, Wives. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the body, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love their wives as their own bodies. He should love his wife as he loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes just as Christ does the church. Because why? We are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that this, as it refers to Christ and to the church, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so what you see here in this picture is that Jesus is the sacrificial bridegroom, that he gives up his life and uh, he dies, gives up, in a sense, control to the will of the Father. If that's the idea and uh, you see in the Gospels, he says, Lord, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but what? Thy will be done. He submits to the Father. He lays his life down. Why? So that the church, people like you and me, who can once live in sin, now can be adopted into the royal family of a holy God. And so he does that, and he saves a submissive bride. So in order for salvation to come to us, we must submit to the Spirit's control in our life. Now, let me ask you a question. When you think in terms of salvation coming from a holy God who laid his life down for you in salvation, do you think submission to him is a problem? That's not a negative concept at all, but it's actually a concept that welcomes salvation. It is as if Zacchaeus comes out of a sycamore tree and he says, Jesus, yes, come to my house today. It is submitting yourself, your will, your desires, your person, everything to a holy God saying, you're welcomed in me. And then as he lives in us and we submit to him, what does he do? He takes us, removes us of sin, and his goal is to sanctify us and make us spotless, radiant, white, and clean. It's the picture of Revelation chapter 19 that we would be dressed in fine linen, white, and clean. Remind you of anything? It reminds you of a beautiful bride coming down in purity. 
Jesus is our bridegroom who offered salvation for us so that we may live a life worthy of the call of the gospel, submitting ourselves to him and being purified day by day. So do you think that he cares about the way we live as a church? Do you think he cares about how you act in your marriage? Do you think he cares what you do with your weekends? Absolutely. Why? Because he didn't ransom you from your sin for you to live out of chaos, disorder, and claiming freedom in your equality. The ransom bought you with a price. As Paul says, and you are not your own. When you go to the altar in marriage, you are claiming, I am no longer my own. You die to yourself, you submit to each other so that you have unity in spite of your diversity, so that there is order rather than chaos while you continue to enjoy God's favor in your relationship. And so the implications of this is this. It helps us see who man is and who woman is. And, and, and so who is the husband? Husband is a display of Christ to the world. Now, let me ask you, husbands, if you're a picture of Jesus to the world, how well are you doing as a husband? Because that's the picture. This is the view that God has of men who claim to know him. You are a picture of husbandry to your bride. You are a picture of Jesus to the world. Ladies, in glad submission, in reverence to God, and also in respect to your husband, get this, you are the picture of the bride to the world. Who's the bride? The church. You are a picture of the church. So just as men in here who have wives are a display of Jesus to the world, women who have husbands are a display of the church to the world. Both are important in terms of who we are in Christ and the roles that we should play. And so I hope that this is beginning to sink in because as it sinks in, then it allows you to now fulfill your role in marriage in a way that pleases God And when you begin to embrace your role in marriage, you understand that you are not less than the other. And so as husbands oftentimes jokingly say, hey, woman, just submit to me, you need to understand that in their joking nature, they better be reminded that they need to be a picture of Jesus. And so anytime that they seem to lord their superiority over you, you just remember that Jesus never lorded his superiority over his church. And so here it is. Husbands, if you're a picture of Christ, what are the two things ladies need from you? They're very clear from Ephesians chapter 5 and other texts. But here's number one is that you need to be sacrificial in your love to your wife. So you need to love your wife. Love her. Love her well. The idea is Luke 22, verse 26. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. The leader in the family is the one who serves the best. That's the idea. It's a picture of loving. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29 says it this way, as we read it a second ago. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but you nourish and you cherish it, just as Christ does the church. And so Christ loves and cherishes the church. He nourishes, supports it. Husbands, you are to do the same. And so in your love, and as you serve with a glad submission, you should do it as nourishment to your bride. And so you love her really well. 
Do you see this picture? You love her. You serve her. Matter of fact, husbands, you ought to outserve your wife. That's the picture of Mark 10, 43 and 45. And Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He's talking about the, the, the leaders of the land. He goes, they always talk about their power and their influence and they lord it over the people. It's a picture of the Pharisees. They tie up cumbersome loads that people cannot carry and they're not willing to carry themselves. But he goes, what, what do the great leaders do? Well, the great ones exercise, uh, he goes, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you shall be your slave. For even the son of man did not come to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. So Jesus came to give his life for the church. Husbands, you should give your lives for your wives in glad submission to Christ. You should revere him, and that reverence for him should cause you to love her well. And so love her well. Your loving oftentimes is best shown through your service. And you may be here and you may be a young guy because at 25, I didn't know exactly what this looked like. But I'll tell you, I wish there would have been someone that told me these words. Hey, Brandon, if you don't know what to do, watch her. And then as you watch her, join her. Because men oftentimes go into the kitchen and their wives are cleaning the dishes. They move from that for just a second to go get some clothes out of the laundry And then while they've got water going, laundry going, they say, I've got a vacuum here in a minute. And then we, in our foolishness, hey, what do you want me to do? And I'm sure the response, because you see it on their face, is, are you an idiot? Were you made out of dirt? And in that point, you go, yeah, baby, I was. Yes, I was. Men, serve, look for ways to be intentional. You and I can vacuum. You and I can do dishes. You and I can change diapers. You and I can do baths. And let me explain something. To the glory of God, you ought to be the best at all those jobs. And every night as a husband, you ought to go to bed dog tired because you have served your family well as you've served God well. Be a picture of sacrificial love to your wives. And then you've got to not just love her, but lead her. That's the picture of Ephesians 5, 25, 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might, what, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present her, what, to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or anything, that she might be, what, holy and without blemish. And then he goes, and I'm speaking about the church, but listen, just as God has sent his son Jesus to redeem you out of sin as the bride of Christ, he's also, what, creating you to be blameless and clean from sin, to be a purifying agent of the world. Listen, husbands, lead your wives towards what? That, a holiness in marriage. Lead her towards a holiness in Christ. Lead your wife to be lovely. Remind her that she is a part of the body of Christ, that God has adorned her, and that that you should be doing the same. And so not just love her, but lead her, shepherd her, care for her, nourish her, cherish her. Remind her of the picture of the gospel daily because you are the picture 
of husbandry as God has sent Jesus to be husbandry to the church. You are a husbandry to your wife. And so then that brings the question, well, wives, what, what are you and what are you supposed to do? What's your role in this? And so here it is. You're a picture of the church. And so just as the church relates to Christ, the wife is also the helper for the husband. So that is your role. You can see it from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. When God saw that Adam was alone, he created in Genesis 2, 18, a helper for him. And that is a primary context of what you will do, okay? And so you revere Christ through your submission to your husband. And so you submit to him. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. You don't do it just because he's superior to you because that's not the goal at all. You do it as you, what? Submit yourself to the Lord. Titus 2, 3 and 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to what? Love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so listen, the idea is that you would submit to your husband. Allow him to lead. And so that means don't control him. I hope it's never said of your family, she wears the pants in this family. Because that is not what God desires. It's not honoring. It's not a beautiful picture of the gospel. At the same time, you're not to be silenced and to be run over. You're not a doormat. You were created for a distinct purpose. You have great diversity. You offer tons to the relationship. You fill in all the gaps. And so we need you, and you, you do not need to be silent. And so when your husband does not lead, then you should gently speak him and remind him of his role to lead. If he is not loving well, you should gently remind him that he is the picture of, of Christ to the church and that, that you need to be nourished and that you need to be cared for. And so your goal is not to be silenced and run over. It is not to be suppressed in some way to make him superior. It is to, though, what? Submit to your husband, allow him to lead, give him that opportunity. And if he fails to lead, then get this, pray for him. Pray that God changes his heart. Pray that God brings men to encourage him, to edify him, to lead, to be the husband that he's called to be. Understand? You're not inferior, but you are different. And then this, respect your husband, respect him. Ephesians 5.33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, speaking of the men, but look at the wife's response, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's amazing how many wives will say, I do, and they think so much of Prince Charming before they say those words. But from this day forward, they go, Prince Charming is no prince anymore. And so they don't respect him with their words to friends and to neighbors and to colleagues. It's so incredible how oftentimes we see that happen with the words of women and their emotions. And so listen, there is a distinct role that you and I play. Do you see this? Men are to love and to lead. Women are to come and they're to submit, to support, to help, and to respect. Do you get this? Now, let me explain some to you. Here's our problem. In the very beginning of time, in Genesis chapter 3, those roles were to be in place and man abdicated his responsibility in the garden of Eden to lead and he gave it to his wife. And his wife took the leadership role and she ate of an apple and convinced him to do the same and ever since, those roles have been flipped. 
And so God's design for marriage is very clear. You agree? It's supportive of the Trinity in all actuality. We look at it, we go, oh my gosh, this is so good, so rich, so meaningful. Man, I wish I would have been acting like Jesus. Man, I wish I would have been acting like a picture of the church. The problem is, is it's difficult to do in our flesh and our sin because we flip the roles. Listen, men, you're to love and lead your wives. Women, you're to submit and respect. We have flipped the two. Matter of fact, think about it this way. Ladies, all you want from your husband is to be loved, nourished, and cherished. But men, as we abdicate our responsibility almost daily, what we have done is not given her love, but we've given her respect. We don't love her well, but we respect her. We respect her role in the house. We respect her position of influence in our family, the way that she helps raise our kids, the way she gets them here and there, and how she manages to get them here and there and also keep them clean underwear, right? And then, by golly, when somebody steps up and talks about your wife, you go, listen to me, buddy. You don't talk about my wife that way. Likewise, over time, ladies... You don't respect your husbands, but you have no problem giving them love. And so you don't want them leading, and you certainly don't want to submit in glad submission to follow them, but you will love them. You'll do dishes and laundry. You'll cook them dinner and make them sweet tea. You'll fold their clothes and put them in their their drawers. You'll do all of that. You don't mind at all doing those things, but you don't respect him and you don't follow him. And listen, you flip the two roles. And so what you have is you have women oftentimes what trying to love, and that's men's role, and you have men giving respect and they should be giving love. And when you do that, it makes everything chaotic. So what used to have order now has chaos. What used to be unity and diversity has now flipped the role and it's not unified at all, is it? It's a mess. And the reason why is because we've taken the influence that God has given us and we have, we have just changed it and distorted those roles. And so the question becomes, well, what happens when you distort it? What happens when you distort God's plan? Well, I'll tell you, when you have a distortion of God's marriage, then you, you can begin with divorce, a breaking of God's covenant. When you have a distortion of marriage to the world, then this, you have a degradation of sex and influences within the marriage and within the culture. You have a degradation of relationships and what God designed, something that used to be what in Scripture and still is man between a woman, two becoming one flesh, is now degraded. And because of the distinction of roles being flipped and the chaos, the disorder in marriage, people go, I don't want that. I'll have it my own way. And they begin to make their own definitions of marriage. And so you got a degradation of not just sex, but distortion of marriage. You have divorce. You have a defiance against God-given roles. You say, hey, who am I to submit, and why do I have to love her? And when you have all that, then you've got a dismemberment of the family unit. And let me ask you this question. Do you think that's happened here? Let me ask you one more time. Do you think that we've had these things happen? Yes. And you go, well, how do we fix it? What do we do about it? We need to be more wise about finding our perfect mate? No. Husbands, you need to look a lot more like Jesus than what we have. Wives, 
you need to understand that in your distinction and your diversity, you are not less than because you are the picture of the church, the bride of Christ. And if you haven't realized it, Christ is the head of the body and the women are the hands and feet. I say it all the time. If this world is going to come to know Jesus, it's because of the church. Why? The church is the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so are the hands and the feet less than the head? By no means, because the head allows the hands and the feet to do their work. And so as the head is Christ, it is also the man, and the woman is, listen, the hands and feet. It is not less of an important role, but it is a role that has to be played, and God cares so deeply about us doing it well. And so my prayer is, is that you and I would take a humble look at ourselves and ask this question, am I living, am I loving, am I leading like Jesus? Am I submitting, am I supporting, am I helping, and am I respecting like Christ desires from the church? And if those two things are a yes, then I can promise you that you're going to have an incredible marriage. If those two things are no, maybe, kind of, need a little bit of work, then you've taken the order of the Godhead and you have dysfunctionalized it and distorted it, which brings about chaos where there should be unity. You see the picture? And so my prayer is that this would move from theology to practicality in your heart. And over the next three weeks, our goal is to give practicality in marriage. And so we're going to take the three top relationship killers that lead to divorces in America, and we're going to address them week by week, three weeks in a row, But you can't not address them until you understand how God designed this thing. Because it doesn't matter how much practicality you give if you don't start with practicality in the very first part, and that's the design of marriage from God. And so my prayer is that you would have some conversations, that there would be some repentance, that there would be some acts of forgiveness that take place as husbands approach their wives and say, listen, I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to. I haven't loved you well. I haven't led well. And I pray that there would be some wives who said, you know what? I can't tell you how many times people have said, you wear the pants in the family. And I've I've almost in some ways thought that was a really good thing. But now I realize that's not a real good thing. Because if I'm wearing the pants, it means my husband's not. And then you would repent and that you would confess and that you would ask God to really mend and mold and make your marriage great. Because it's a picture of the gospel to the world. And let me ask you this question as I close. Does the world need more of the gospel? Yes. The problem is, is that there's too many Christians inviting people to church and saying, hey, come serve this God that I love. But your marriage is an absolute wreck being displayed to them. And the two don't jive. So let me pray for you. And I pray that it's an encouragement to you. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you, Lord for the Godhead. We thank you, Lord, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the order and the unity despite the the, uh, diversity. We thank you, Lord, that there's equality, that the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son. God, I'm so thankful for the way that you designed it. And I pray, God, that we would be able to take these correlations and apply them to our marriage. I pray, God, for husbands to love and to lead. I pray for ladies in here to submit, not out of inferiority, but because they love Christ. And a glad submission, they revere their husbands and they respect their husbands. And I pray, God, you would take all of this and you would remind them of those words that they said. 
from this day forward. And I pray, God, that you would extend glad tidings and great grace to the relationship as they desire to become one flesh in a way that glorifies and pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.